All right, team. Welcome to the Man Talk Show. I am Connor Beaton, and I'm excited for today's conversation for a number of reasons uh, that I will tell you about in just a moment. But let me tell you a little bit about the guest today, uh, Mr. Daniel Kwok, who came to the U.S. in 1999 with his family, moved to Chicago, Illinois. Uh, He was the son of an immigrant pastor, and they came from an extreme background of financial struggle. Uh, having moved from South Korea to Chicago and had to break through language barriers, cultural barriers, and uh, and he, he and his family really struggled quite a bit when the, he when they were growing up. He tells a few stories about when he was a kid early on in the podcast that I think are are pretty profound. Uh, but later on in life, he and his brother Daniel started up a, a real estate investment company and career. And after a few years of hard work, they found a financial breakthrough in 2017, going from zero to 75 rental units in just one year. And so they have been extremely successful in the real estate market. Uh, Both Daniel and his brother now travel and consult with other entrepreneurs in the real estate investment space, as well as they have built up a very successful YouTube channel called The Quack Brothers. Uh, And they do all kinds of videos about what's happening in the economy. They have talked quite a bit about The Great Reset uh, they talk about inflation. They talk about what's happening within the banking industry, and so a lot of a lot of really interesting stuff. And I wanted to have Daniel on the show today to talk about a number of things, but we we kind of get into it all. I mean, we talk about the state of the economy, what's actually happening, uh, especially here in in the West, but what's happening globally to the economy. We talk about things like inflation and quantitative easing. What are those things? We talk about how to save your money, uh, where you can invest your money. We talk about things like whole life insurance and uh, ETF funds. We touch a little bit on crypto. We talk about the Great Reset. We talk about what's happening within government bodies. Uh, we talk about what happens when you know federal reserves and central banks print off a lot of money, why they do that, the impact that it has within our culture and our society. And so I really love this conversation. It's one that I've been wanting to have for a number of reasons, mostly because I, as I talk about in the podcast, grew up with very, very little financial literacy, Um, very little financial literacy. Like I really didn't know much about money. I didn't really have an opinion about money. I didn't have opinion about you know government spending or uh, how to how to create a a balance sheet or where I should save my money or what a tax free savings account is or a four hundred one k or any of those things. I never really understood how any of those things worked. And over the past several years, I have invested a lot of time, a lot of effort, and a, and a good amount of money into better understanding how to set myself and my family up for financial abundance, for wealth, for prosperity. And part of why I wanted to have this conversation is because I've noticed over the last couple of years that there has been quite a bit more financial insecurity and fear and scarcity within the minds of the men that I've come into contact with. And so this conversation is really a conversation about some options about how you as an individual uh, can begin to make more money, save your money, invest your money, secure that, and grow your wealth for long term. And so, again, none of this is necessarily financial advice, um, but options in terms of how myself, how Daniel, how other people have begun to uh, to grow their wealth. And I feel like in a time where there's so much 
uh, fear and uncertainty about what's happening within the world globally and, and maybe what's happening within the economy, this is just a really great conversation to spark some dialogue. Uh, so if you enjoyed this conversation, definitely send this podcast off to somebody that, that you know will enjoy it. Um, and please, please, please head on over, leave us a rating and review. If you've been listening to this show and you enjoy this show, it goes a long way to getting us onto the phones and into the ears of other people by doing two simple things. Number one, sharing the podcast with somebody that you think might enjoy it or that you want to have a dialogue about it. I know for myself how I've really learned uh, from podcasts is by listening to a podcast and then sending it to a friend and then having a conversation about the content of that conversation. And that has really supported me. So number one, share the podcast. Number two, head on over to whatever platform you listen to me on and please leave a rating and review. I'd love to hear your thoughts and what the show has done for you. So without any further delay, please welcome Mr. Daniel Kwok. All right, Daniel, welcome to the Man Talk Show. How are you doing today? What's going on, man? You know, I love how we were just having the conversation, how it's a little colder here in Chicago than it is in upstate New York where you're at. But other than that, I'm, I'm golden, my brother. Good, good, man. Well, listen, I've been following your work for a while. I've watched a bunch of your videos and uh, I appreciate your take. And it's been a while since we talked about money on the show. And uh, I feel like now is a good time to do that. I have a bunch of people lined up over the next couple of months to dive into the economy and cryptocurrency and just a whole bunch of these topics. And, uh, and so I'm very grateful to get to do this conversation with you today. But let's begin with where I always begin, which is tell us a story about a defining moment in your life that made you who you are today. Yeah, I love it. I love it. So uh, I'll, I'll give you the context and I'll kill two birds with one stone. So I'll give you the context for the story. And all the while, I'll also give you kind of like my background. So I'm an immigrant to the United States. I uh, immigrated to this uh, to a country from South Korea uh, at the age of five. So I actually came in the late 90s and I had a great introduction to the U.S. because, you know, late 90s in Chicago, it was a pretty interesting time. You know, I mean, obviously you had the, the iconic Michael Jordan, you know, and, and kind of the U.S. culture was at large, right? And I was like, wow, so this is the United States. This is really cool. Um, so uh, we were very poor. You know, we came here with, with barely anything. I remember, uh, you know, most nights we, you know, we slept in the car because we couldn't afford to pay the heating bill during the winter. Uh, I actually remember there was one time where our family was in the park and my mom was picking up the weeds, you know, and putting them in this container. And, you know, I later saw that on the dinner plate that night, um, you know, and we just had that and rice for dinner. And so, you know, it was, it was a really interesting time. But there was one story I still remember. I was six years old um, that has defined what I do, how I do it, and most importantly, why I do it and also who I do it with. Right. So kind of the, the every aspect of asking that question. So I was six years old. Uh, this was about 1.30 a.m. in the morning. And um, I always had trouble sleeping as a kid for some reason. But uh, I definitely don't do now. <laughs> but uh, as a kid, I did. Uh, and so we live next to, let's call it a uh, gentleman's entertainment center in case anyone is listening to this podcast in the car with their kids. Uh, let's, 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 we'll, we'll call it that. So uh, we're living next to this gentleman's entertainment center. It's 1.30 a.m. in the morning and I'm looking out of the window. It's pitch black and the only, the only way you can see are streetlights. And, you know, in front of this gentleman's entertainment center is a streetlight and it kind of creates a spotlight in front of the door. And I see this man uh, stumbling out. And let's say he was stumbling because he drank a lot of juice, right? 
and um, he's got a suit on. And look, I mean, you don't have to be a full-grown man and know all the brands to understand that the suit that he was wearing was extremely expensive. Uh, he had a very shiny watch on his wrist, and he got into a very, very nice Lexus. And, you know, he drove away. Unfortunately, as he drove, he swerved a lot. But um, what was really disappointing about seeing that man was uh, I noticed that he had a ring on his finger. And uh, obviously, meaning that he was married and he was, you know, pulling off these type of shenanigans. Uh, now, I knew that that guy was really well off. I could tell, you know. Um, and this, you know, this part of town, he only visited to visit that gentleman's entertainment center. But what was interesting about that story is I, I turned nine degrees to my left. Um, and I see my parents who are sharing a twin size bed in a room that doubled as our kitchen, as our dining room, as our living room. Um, I mean, you name it, you know, I mean, we were living in a pretty small studio apartment. And the question that I asked myself is how different would the world look if, uh, my dad had the ability and the knowledge that the other man had that I saw that night to be able to create resources. Uh, and well, how differently would the world look is if that man who stumbled out of the gentleman's entertainment center at 2 a.m. in the morning had my dad's heart. Because my dad was the type of guy where, you know, he was a pastor, I'm a preacher's kid. And, you know, he, he would literally give, all, give the, the shirt off his back, even if it was the last thing he owned, to help somebody else. You know, that was the type of man that he was. Um, extremely humble, God-fearing, kind, generous man, you know? And so that's the question I started asking myself, you know, I was like, what would the, how differently would the world look? And, and that for me was a defining moment. And, you know, it transpired into a lot of interesting things that happened in my life. Mm. I appreciate that story. And <clears throat> yeah, I was, I was curious. I had read that your, your dad was a pastor and I was wondering, you know, what was it like to be, you know, an immigrant son to uh, a pastor? You know, it's like I feel like when kids find out that other kids' parents are are pastors or priests or whatever, it's like, oh, there's there's so much stigma that comes along with that. But then also to like, you know, have immigrated from another uh, another country. It's like, what what was all that like as a as a kid? Yeah, well, it was interesting because you know, as an entrepreneur, you know, the goal is to generate as much money as possible, right? Mm. Um, but I remember, uh, man, all throughout my childhood, really, you know, it, it, my dad would have guest speakers come to our church, you know, once every other month, you know, once a quarter. And the common denominator was that every single one of them, two things, right? Every single one of them uh, had a genuine heart. You know, whether you believe in God or not, they wanted to serve their fellow man. You know, I mean, they were doing stuff like going to places like North Korea, you know, to help people and feed people. And, you know, and they were going to places like China, Africa. I mean, you name it. You know, all all for the purpose of just loving people, helping them out, you know. Um, and the second common denominator was that they all needed money. <laughs> they were all there to fundraise. They, we would always do what's known as like a love offering, which in the church is you, you just pass the basket around, you know, basket around and go, hey, whatever you feel like giving, you know, give to, let's give to these people. It's going to go directly to them. And so, you know, I, I kind of asked myself, I was like, man, like if, if we're the people of God, like if we are followers of Jesus, and, you know, we're called to live a different life. Why are we all poor? Like, why, why are we all, you know, kind of in this mentality of, you know, it's like, oh, we have to suffer for our religion, which actually I've later find out is not true at all. That's not what we're meant to do. We're not meant to suffer for our religion as 
many other religions around the world glorify, you know, whether it's Buddhism, Muslim, I mean, all these different faiths and practices will glorify suffering and pain. Um, when you have a true relationship with Jesus, that's actually a temporary period. But uh, it, it really changed and altered my my view on money. Um, and I was fortunate, extremely fortunate from a very early on age um, to experience things, ask questions and have dialogue that positioned money as a tool, as a formidable tool to help others as opposed to a means to getting what I want. And I think a lot of people kind of have a different stigma you know, so I do this exercise with my students. So I, I teach real estate. You know, I have a lot of one-on-one -on -one clients. And whenever we do events and retreats, I do this little exercise. And I tell everyone to close their eyes. And so if people listening to the podcast, you know, they want to do it now, sure, they can do it. Just don't do it while you're driving, right? Uh, but I have everyone close their eyes. And I say, how differently would your life look like if you made an extra $10 a month? Extra $10 a month, what would you do with that money? Yada, yada, yada. And I keep going. I up the ante every single time. Okay, how would your life look different if you made an extra $100 a month and then $1,000 a month and then $10,000 a month, $100,000, and I get all the way up to $10 million a month. How differently would your life look if you were making extra $10 million, no taxes, no strings attached, like the FBI is not going to knock at your door, like this is all yours, right? And every single time I do this, there's typically a shift between, you know, that, that happens usually around like a $10,000 to $100,000 mark where they stop thinking about themselves. And they actually start shifting the focus on how they can help other people, you know? So I tell people all the time who I train to become entrepreneurs, um, your failure as an entrepreneur is actually a slap in the face to people who believe in you. Like your unwillingness to get up and do the work. I mean, and this is very man stuff, right? And, and I'll be very vulnerable. This helped me a lot with my addiction to pornography. So I was addicted to pornography ever since I was 12 years old. And, you know, when, when I really resonated this with my mind of me making these small decisions on a daily basis like at the end of the day let's you and i connor you and i both agree to win the decade we have to win the day you know i mean we have to and winning the day always comes down to these little decisions that we make every single moment throughout the day even in the morning when it's 6 a.m you don't want to get up you don't want to go work out well that decision will impact how you win the decade and ultimately how your life is going to be panned out and who you are will dictate what your legacy is not what you leave behind you know, so um, for me, I realized I had to I had to win the day and that helped me with my addiction, obviously, to pornography. But the whole mantra of that exercise of the 10,000, 100,000, whatever is for you. And I don't care if you're an entrepreneur or if you're you know, a corporate employee, whatever. If you are not striving to be the best version of who you could be, it really is a slap in the face to all those people who invested in you, all those people who believe in you. And ultimately, all those people you have an opportunity to serve in the future not just with what you do or what you can give, but ultimately who you can be. I am talking to you, Mr. Connor Beaton, on the Man Talks podcast and offering all the mistakes, all the lessons I've learned throughout my life because of who I am, not because of what I do, not because of what I can give or the amount of money that's in my bank account or how much of it I give away, but because of who I am as a person. So, you know, for, for me, I would say that's such a powerful theme that I've learned, you know, throughout my life that money can be such a formidable resource but the source of where it comes from and who that person is as a character, you know, the potential is so much there. You know, again, it doesn't matter if you're an entrepreneur. It doesn't matter if you're an artist, a painter, a rapper, a corporate employee. Man, like that, that's such a powerful thing to grasp and understand. And I just, I've been very fortunate to have learned that uh, at, at an early age. Yeah, I, I feel like when we as men lack meaning, 
you know, and we lack purpose. When we lack the ability to provide for ourselves and for the people around us, and we lack the maybe the skills or the or the internal knowing that we have the capacity to do what it takes, then we turn to those types of things, right? We turn to pornography, booze, weed, you know, yeah. excessive video games, binge watching TV, whatever, whatever it is. You know, I feel like I've talked about this in the show. I feel like I ran the ga- you know, the gauntlet on all of those at some point, just like to testing them all out. Yeah, I mean, I, I appreciate the the way that you look at that. You know, that we can use money as a tool, and we can. I, I especially like the exercise because it's simple. But I think for for most of us, you know, I look back uh, before doing what I'm doing today, and before I worked for Apple for a couple of years. Before I worked for Apple, and like you know, I was just dead broke and could barely pay rent and, you know, had tens of thousands of dollars of debt on my credit card. And it was just, it was a bad situation all around. And so the idea of like even a hundred dollars a month at that point would have been like an extra hundred bucks or then a hundred, an extra thousand dollars. It's like, huh? So I feel like that's a good exercise for people to do to kind of give them a different future or pathway to focus on, to move into and to then start to open some of the doors of like, okay, well, how do I create that? So, all well, right, real, real well, quick, before we move on, please. I want to I touch on the point that that it, that exercise is powerful, and what you're saying is absolutely true. And we all, as men, especially, we all should think like that because for us, it's primitive. I mean, the the idea. I mean, think about thousands of years ago when we were in tribes, you know, mostly in groups of hundreds to 150, right? The, the purpose of the man at that point in time was to provide the food, right? It's to go out and kill, to hunt, right? And provide protection. The whole essence of who we were was all about outside us. It was all about the tribe, our purpose in life. So if you think about it, you're talking about thousands of years of evolution, thousands of years of development. If you think about the modern day male entrepreneur, or if you think about the modern day employee or whatever, uh, we are extremely comfortable. 90% of men purpose, especially in the United States, is all about themselves and their legacy. So I was talking with a, a friend of mine who's an entrepreneur. He's a pretty well-known guy. Everyone should go check out his content. His name is Alex Hormozzi. So uh, you know, Alex is a friend of mine, and we were talking about how both of us hate the word legacy because the reality of the word legacy is that 50 years from now, it does not matter what you leave behind. Um, 50 years from now, no one's going to know your name. Like, no one's going to know your name. There's there's very few people throughout history that still have their names remembered after a thousand years, right? Like men like Gandhi, Jesus, Martin, right? Like that's it, right? Like, and I'm, I'm sorry, like I am no longer, like I am nowhere close to that category. Like nor will I ever, you know, maybe one day, right? But like as for now, I am nowhere near that category. But if you think about it, it's so true because most individuals, most men, especially in the United States, their, their belief is that they have to be self-motivated. They're motivated by what can they receive for their life. Even as an entrepreneur, and I've, I've coached entrepreneurs for many years now, uh, it's it's super neat because the minute that um, their mentality and their thinking on a day-to-day is, is that there's a, a group of tasks that they have to do throughout that week, uh, I actually experimented this. When I tell them, hey, think about all the things that you can accomplish for you, right? Like think about the, the nice cars, the houses, whatever. Um, there is so much of a higher likelihood that they won't do the task because for them, they're okay with kind of letting themselves down, kind of lowering their standard. But all of a sudden, when I start talking about, look, like, think about your wife, think about your kids, you know, think about, you know, for them, the, a better life that they could have and think about all the people that you can help. And, and if we take like even 20 minutes to expand on the topic of how many people you can help, like what communities you can create, all the benefits you can do for other people, 
the likelihood of them accomplishing those tasks for that week skyrocket because all of a sudden it's bigger than themselves. So my message to a lot of individuals too, especially men is like, if, if you're planning on this special project, this, and again, you don't have to be an entrepreneur, but if you're wanting to crush it in some way, shape or form, whether it's fitness, whether it's know that it's ever rarely seldom actually for yourself. Like I get inspired watching people lose weight and, you know, like get eight pack abs when they used to be 300, but like that inspires me, you know? And, and so by them being who they are and changing who they are inspires me, it's actually creating a, an effect, a ripple effect. So, I mean, nine times out of 10, when we think of reasons beyond ourselves, it happens way more often. And I've seen it as a coach. It changes the game, actually. And it's true. And it's not some, oh, like it's amazing personal development or interest. No, it's biological. It's evolutionary. Like it's the way that we were wired as men to be more motivated by what we can do for our tribe than what we can do for ourselves. Yeah, it's such a good, uh, you know, we've talked about initiation on this show quite a bit. And one of the staples of initiation that as a man, when you go through an initiatory process, the the sort of crux of it is that you come back more capable and more equipped to contribute to yeah. the community. Right. And so it's it's challenging because I feel like in this in this hyper connected but very disconnected age, it's easy for a man to feel like he's a part of something, you know, wasting wasting time on on Facebook, you know, nonsense. And it, it's, all of these sort of digital platforms sometimes play to this notion that you're contributing to a larger message when, you know, you've you've just become a keyboard warrior. And it's not to it's not to sort of diminish that. I mean, there's certainly merit in it in some in some areas. But the actual contribution of being able to contribute to your family, to your friends and the people around you, I think is important. And that's why I wanted yeah. to have you on the show, you know, was to talk about how do we as men prepare and understand what's happening in the economy, in the financial markets today? Like, what do we actually need to know? Because for me, you know, I had a son about 13 months ago, just, just under Congratulations. Just, that's just amazing. over a year. Thank you. Thanks. And, uh, and it really, it like lit a fire in my ass, you know, or all of a sudden, you know, my, my wife and I, we do fairly well for ourselves, but all of a sudden I had this boy and I was like, oh, I need to prepare for him and his future. And, and what do I need to tell him about money? And I started to realize that I didn't know shit. You know, mm. I had, I had done a good job of, of saving and investing, but I didn't really know much about, uh, about the markets. And so I started, you know, researching Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies and ETF funds and bonds and like, <laughs> you know, mutual funds and all that kind of stuff. And it was it was crazy how much I didn't know. So I'm going to pause. I'm just going to ask you the big question of how would you describe what is happening within the economy, within the West? Like, how would you just sort of describe what's what's going on and how is it diff maybe different from the past, from what's happened in previous decades? Yeah, which by the way, uh, remind me to have a conversation with you off the record because sure. uh, for your kid, you should set up what's known as a whole life insurance policy and a cash value. And there's this, actually a concept called infinite banking strategy. We're actually doing it for my niece. Mm -hmm. And uh, my brother and I opened one up for her, like literally the second day she was born. Mm -hmm. And I mean, she's going to be set up super well. I think by the time she's like 18, she's going to have like $10,000 a month coming in no matter what, just like period. And we're not putting that much into it. So um yeah, remind me, remind me to talk to you about that. Okay, so the economy. So uh, I'm a geek for macroeconomics. I love it. You know, it's one of those things where, you know, people get obsessed with watches. Some people get obsessed with guitars, you know, and they collect. Uh, I love talking about the economy because you learn 
so much about the human race and so much about people, depending on how they move money, how they structure money. Fun fact, uh, money is actually the second most popular topic that Jesus talked about when he was here on earth because uh, he knew how it affects men. And he actually said this quote, it says, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Meaning, hey, dude, uh, I, can actually sh- I can actually see what you actually care about by what, by, by what you spend money on. That's Jesus' way of saying, put your money where your mouth is, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but in, in talking about the economy, it's, it just shares a lot about who we are as a generation. You know, I mean, right now we have the highest inflation that we've seen in over 40 years, which, by the way, the government has gotten very good at how they manipulate that inflationary number. So in looking at the real-time factors, comparing data points to data points as it was 20, 30, 40 years ago, we actually have the highest inflation rate ever in the history of the United States. Can can you can you just maybe I'll just if you're okay with it, I'll just interject here and there. Sure. sure. In a, in just sort of a very basic way, can you just say what inflation is? Because I think that term gets thrown around a lot. Yes. And I yes. don't. I think a lot of people have a very basic concept of it, but I would love for you to expand on it. Yeah. Just a little yeah. Bit. So I'll, I'll I'll do it in a very uh, simple format, right? So people are you know governments institutions are saying that inflation is at seven point nine percent. Right. At the time of this recording, that was the last reported number, February 2022. Inflation is 7.9%. So, Connor, do you drive a Tesla or do you drive a normal car? I drive a Tesla. <laughs> you drive a Tesla? Okay. Yeah. Why, why, why did I guess? Okay. So, this question doesn't mean anything to you. Right. But I, as a normal human being, a peasant, if you will, that's driving a non Tesla, because um, I know that's how all you Tesla owners think, right? Yeah, especially right, not. especially how right now, come on now, like oh, you suckers pay for you're gas. You're at the gas right? station. I <laughs> miss my, <laughs> I miss my, uh, my Volkswagen GTI. I used to oh, drive a Volkswagen dude, GTI. Yeah, I love that car. Standard, you know. Six Let's speed. go. Yeah. Just, okay. Just out of curiosity, do you, do you drive a three, an S, or an X, or or a Y? I, I have the X. You got the X. Okay, I'm not surprised. <laughs> but anyways, gotta so, have the gold wing doors for the baby. I, to get that's into, exactly you know? right. The X wing. Yeah, I love it, man. Yeah. Well, my brother's thinking about getting one, so I'm I'm actually starting to look for myself. But okay, um, so I drive I drive a normal car, right? So I drive a Hyundai Tucson, and uh, I love it. Yeah, it's amazing. And I I barely I don't pay a lot for gas, but I will certainly tell you I pay way more than seven point nine percent. I used to pay about forty six dollars for a full tank of gas. Today I pay sixty two, right? So you're I mean is that a eight percent increase? I don't think so. You know, if anything, that's a 33% increase, mathematically speaking. And if you look at what's going on with prices of goods and services, it's certainly way more than 7.9%. At the end of the day, that's what inflation is. It's, you know, the cost of goods and services in relation to the purchasing power of your currency. And right now, our purchasing power has significantly decreased. And the cost of goods and services have significantly increased, certainly more than an 8% spread. You know, so if you look at mano y mano, I mean, my estimation is inflation is actually kind of closer to 15% across the board, hmm. you know, 14, 15% based on the math that I'm doing in my head. So let's, so let's see, we have that going on, right? We have that going on. And on top of that, our economy is, ex- is being extremely propped up by what my friend Dave Seymour would call Mickey Mouse money, right? It was, it's, all, it's all artificial cash. And it's hmm. different today than it was 12 years ago, than it was 20 years ago in the dot-com bubble, than it was... 30 years ago when the interest rates were, you know, were significantly higher. So, you know, it's, it's different because never have we ever had a time in our history where the Federal Reserve has such a large number in their balance sheet. We've never had a third party entity buying up as many securities and bonds that they're doing right now. I mean, to give you an idea, it was 1.9 trillion of quantitative easing, I believe, in 2019. 
That's where we were at. That's where the Fed balance sheet was at. In 2019, it was $1.9 trillion. The Obama administration pretty much began the whole quantitative easing you know, process in the, in the grand awakening and the, the recovery of the Great Recession. So that's when it really started. And it went from like $900 billion, I believe, to $1.9 trillion during the recovery phase of the Great Recession. And then since COVID happened, um, now it's close to $9 trillion. Like we've, yeah. it's, it's incredible. The Federal Reserve became the largest pr- private securities holder almost overnight. You know, so if you think about men like Warren Buffett, Char- you know, Charlie Munger, Bill Ackman, right? like all these titans of the finance and investing industry, the Federal Reserve did something in like a matter of weeks that it took them 40 years, 50 years for them to do. And they just blew them out of the water. So, yeah. you know, for me, a lot of people are scared because, well, what if there's another recession? What if there's another this? What if there's another that? Uh, and I'm sitting here today in front of you saying that probably there's this thing called the yield curve inversion that just happened, you know, not too long ago. That is pretty much a, a good predictor of whether or not a recession is coming. Um, so maybe it will happen, maybe it won't. But based on what I'm researching right now, it will probably happen. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that was interesting for me to watch, and I read this stat the other day somewhere that said that the the Federal Reserve uh, printed off 40% of the total currency, American currency, over the course of the last two years. So all of the currency in all of the American dollar that, that has ever existed in the last two years, the Federal Reserve printed off 40% of yeah. that. They're like that's an insane, 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 insane amount of money, and so I just wanted to back up on the the point just so that we didn't go past it. You mentioned quantitative easing, and mm-hmm. so I think if we, my understanding, it's very basic, but it's the printing off of money to do what? So the Federal Reserve will print off more money to ease the inflation rates, or like, how would you describe that? Yeah, yeah. So another word for that is what's known as open market operations. And it's when the Federal Reserve will purchase or sell notes like pieces of paper to either inject money into the economy or take money out of the economy. So we we almost kind of did an over recovery, you know, uh, where we've printed so much money in exchange for notes in terms of quantitative easing, allowing other people like countries to buy those notes, where we've kind of overstimulated the economy, we over over recovered. And, and by the way, for, for men out there, right, and you're kind of listening to this and you're going, I don't know what the heck they're talking about. Um, it's very simple. If you want to just go on YouTube and look up how monetary policy works and just look up monetary policy, there's a couple of great YouTube videos. I think there's a guy, I don't know him. He's not my friend, so I'm not plugging him or anything. But uh, I watched a lot of his videos. There's a guy named Jacob Clifford who does a great job. I think he's an econ professor uh, and he does a phenomenal job simplifying how the monetary system works. So you know, you don't have to be an expert if you want to just get to a point where, hey, you want to know at least what you're talking about. You know, enough, you want to know enough to be dangerous to make sure that your portfolio is, you know, sound and secure. And, um, you know, you want to impress maybe some a couple of chicks at a party or I don't know, um, you know, look up how the monetary system works. But that's what quantitative easing is. is it's, it's another word for it, is open market operation. And you're injecting or you're taking liquidity out of the economy through the purchasing or selling of notes. So in in essence, inflation, let's just say that you have $1,000 in your bank account and inflation goes from 5.6% to 7% to 10%. Essentially, what it means is that $1,000 in your bank account is not now not only worth less because there's more money in the economy, 
but it has less purchasing power, which means that your thousand dollars now buys you less goods, right? Like when you go to the exactly grocery right. store, everything costs more money. When you go to the gas pump, it costs more money. And so your thousand dollars or your hundred dollars or your ten thousand dollars is now worth less. Is that correct? That, that's exactly right. And not only that, but inflation, I consider it to be a tax from the government. Mm -hmm. Because think about it. it, you know, whenever whenever the government prints money, whose government whose whose money is it? The government's. Right. Mm -hmm. So if you and I are playing a game of Monopoly and I've given you, you know, fifteen hundred dollars to start the game and I'm the government and I have fifteen hundred dollars. And let's say I printed, you know, I took from the bank three thousand dollars. Well, all of a sudden there's a total of seven thousand dollars. No, six thousand dollars in circulation. Your fifteen hundred now has significantly less purchasing power in the mm -hmm. game of Monopoly, you know. So and, and obviously in a scenario where the prices of hotels and houses are, are not already dictated. Right. So, you know, in, in my opinion, inflation is one of the largest taxes uh, a government will, will hand off to the people. And it's unfortunate because inflation is actually one of the main things that will destroy a middle class. Um, does not matter what country. You look at what happened in Venezuela. You look at what happened in Zimbabwe. And like all these different countries that have experienced high rates of inflation, um, it, it usually takes out the middle class first. And the wealth, of the, the gap significantly gets a lot larger. So talk to me a little bit about what does, what does the average person do who's got a, a fixed salary, you know, who's making 50, 60 K a year, trying to pay rent, trying to pay their mortgage, their, you know, their car loan, et cetera. How do, how does the average person begin to save in a way that I don't know if safeguard is the right word, but but can safeguard them from the inflation that we're experiencing right now. Like, are there ways for people to be smart with saving and investing their money that is going to support them to get through this period of of inflation or hyperinflation? Yeah. Well, I mean, first and foremost, let me tell you, it's a great time to borrow money, right? Hmm. How come? Uh, because we we have a very high inflationary period, but also the rates are super low, right? The interest okay. rates are historically very low. Uh, in, my, in my opinion, the way that you want to, because uh, I think ultimately what you're asking is what should people do, right? Like what yeah. should people invest into? What should people buy? You know, uh, kind of your basic economist will tell you, hey, you know, during these types of periods, you want to buy into, you know, precious metals. Uh, you want to buy into insurance policies. You want to buy into real estate. In my opinion, out of those three, real estate is by far the best asset you can buy. You know, I love, I, I got a friend of mine who tell, every every single podcast he goes on, he says something along the lines of, hey, man. Uh, if, if, if I went to the bank and I, you know, asked to borrow a hundred thousand dollars to buy stocks, they would laugh at me. They wouldn't give me, if I asked to borrow a hundred thousand dollars to buy Bitcoin, they're going to laugh at me. But if I wanted to borrow a hundred thousand dollars to buy a piece of real estate, they will happily give me the money. Uh, which, you know, he's got a point, right? That's absolutely true. You know, real estate, I believe is the most secure investment asset you can get yourself in is because if you think about it, uh, you look at a house from the 1980s, you look at it now, you know, the, the cost is significantly different. A house in the 1980s would cost how much? I don't know. Um, like, like 90 to $120,000, maybe depending on the house. Right. But, the median, yeah. yeah, the median sales price of a home, right? 90 to $120,000, let's say. Well, the median uh, home nowadays, last time I checked was three hundred and seventy. $7,000 last time I checked. So you're talking about a 3X, more almost a 4X, right? Three and a half times increase. Myself, along with a couple of other friends that are pretty well-known economists, will say that the cost of real estate actually hasn't increased. It, it, it inflated, hmm. you know? So if you think about what happened between 1980s all the way up to now, which is the 2020s, the decade that we're in, 
there was no, I mean, I mean, and think about it. There, like, have homes gotten significantly that much better since the 1980s? Like, do we do we now have robot arms in our? Well, you do because you're a Tesla owner. No, right? <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's part part robot in my garage. Yeah. That's right. That's right. But you know, but think about it, like have have homes gotten that much higher in quality where the value is three times more? I would say no. I mean, there's whole, I can I can go on the MLS right now. I can go on Zillow right now and find homes that were built in the 1980s that are worth way more today than they would have been if they were sold in 1980s. So the cost of real estate actually has inflated. So the point being, going back to your original question, you know, I'm putting a lot of money into real estate currently, mm. you know, into my real estate portfolio, and I'm doing it in a way where it's because inflation, uh, I'm actually borrowing as much as I can. So I'm buying properties via what's known as seller financing. When the seller actually finances the note for me and not the bank, the reason why I'm doing it is because I want a low interest, long-term fixed rate financing. Because a lot of times the biggest risk when people buy real estate is how they finance it. And oftentimes the biggest risk within financing are what's known as these short-term balloons, where you have to refinance your mortgage three years from now, four years from now, five years from now. And who's to say that we'll be in a time in our economy three, four, five years from now where not only the interest rate will be higher, so then your cash flow all of a sudden decreases because obviously, you know, the rent comes in, your mortgage payment's higher, there's less money that you're going to be able to take home at the end of the day. Right? It's just basic math. And not only that, but who's to say that we'll be in a position in our economy where the banks want more money down? They want to liquidate more of their portfolio than they, are, they currently have right now. Right now, they're pretty good in liquidity, but again, who's to say three to four or five years from now, if there is a recession, in fact, that that won't be the case. So, you know, when when people are buying real estate, I'm telling all my students, you know, all my clients I work with, you know, whenever you buy it, make sure you have long term fixed rate financing on it to really secure your financing, because real estate is going to be one of the best ways, if not the the best way, I believe, to hedge against what's happening right now economically. Yeah, it does seem to be part of what happened over the pandemic was like everybody fled from cities and, you know, bought land, bought property. I mean, we did the same thing. We bought we bought a house. Uh, we're actually building a house and and part of the, the hopefully it should be done at the end of May, hopefully. Uh, but uh, I mean, that was that was a very interesting process because I never invested any money into real estate before. But we ended up getting like a 30 year fixed construction loan at a very low interest rate. And when I started looking at some of the other options, it was insane to see some of yeah. the options where you have three years on a, on a mortgage, but the interest rate and the interest rate is very low. But then, yeah, like you said, after those three years, you could be getting you know a five percent interest rate, and and the interest rates really yes. you know destroy you. And so, yeah, I think that's that's pretty sage. Yeah. Um, Which, by the way, I, I I'll I'll tell you this. Um, you mentioned something earlier, right? We see we saw such a big spike in real estate the last two years, right? Yes. And you know, a lot of people thought the pandemic was going to destroy the housing market. We thought we were going to see 2008 all over again. You know, there was people out there. The opposite happened, right? It like it shot up. And I'll be the first to tell you, I was wrong. In back in 2017, I was telling people that the market was going to crash in 2020. Right. So in 2017 and 18, I was telling everybody, even on our YouTube channel, I'll, you, could, you can actually go back and find videos from 2017 where I'm telling people, hey, the market was going to crash in 2020. The reason why I said that is because uh, the Obama administration, when they did quantitative easing and they administered quantitative easing, they issued out the most amount of 10 year treasury bonds in 2010. And I knew that those those notes were going to come due in 2020. And we're at a point in our country where if you looked at our GDP, 
and what our nation produced, it was almost the exact same as just the interest on the debt that we owed that was due in 2020. So, you know, you're looking at this in 2018. It's like, hold on. So you're beginning to tell me we have a major, major reimbursement date coming. Like we have to pay off that loan, right? Like we issued those 10-year bonds. Like we have to pay them off. And not only that, but we can barely keep up with the interest, let alone take care of the, the actual principle of that note. We're screwed, right? Like we're, we're going to have to do something, right? Like there's, something's got to happen. There's got to be some type of, you know, the, the market has to correct itself, right? So I, I thought for sure that the market was going to crash in 2020. What I did not anticipate was that the Federal Reserve and the government were going to print literal trillions of dollars to prop up the economy. Uh, I mean, that just came out of left field. So they, they not only printed, you know, I mean, absurd amounts of money, uh, but they also lowered interest rates all the way down to zero. And they started doing these stimulus checks where everyone got thousands of dollars, you know, from, from the heavens, you know, and, and that propped, the, the, propped up the economy more artificially than ever before, I think, historically speaking. I mean, you would have to go all the way back to like, you know, the Roman Empire to be able to see examples like this. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's absolutely insane. So I, I'm not saying that's why the pandemic happened, you know, but it's interesting, right? There's, it just happens. There, there happens to be a pandemic. And that happens to be the reason as to why governments print trillions and trillions of dollars around the same time where we owed some people some money. <laughs> so I don't know. You know, you, you make the judgment for yourself. But that's I just a, think that's yeah. interesting. Around the time that we owed some people some money. Look at that. I mean, it's, you know? it's, it's interesting because I think, well, this kind of branches off into some of the bigger questions around, you know, you and your channel. I've talked quite a bit about the Great Reset. Mm. Um, I've been reading quite a bit about central bank digital currencies, which is such an interesting concept, especially the programmable central bank digital currencies, like the fact that a a, a a federal reserve or a central bank could create a digital currency a dollar that they can program and and literally shut off or give you a time bound digital currency right so if you get paid a thousand dollars a month from this central bank digital currency they can say you have 60 days to spend this otherwise it disappears uh, or you can only spend it at, you know, these locations, you know, you can't go to fancy restaurants, you can't buy an iPhone, you can't, you can't buy all this stuff with it, you can only buy certain stuff with it. And so it, it does seem like we are entering into a new era in terms of the economy. And so I would just, I'm going to just open that up in a very broad way. And I would love for you to speak about from your perspective and what you've researched and what you know, what are we entering into? Like, what are some of the financial and economic shifts that you see happening, especially here in the West? Yeah, I, I, you know, I think first and foremost, governments uh, all around the world, they want to create a system where they could um, either monetize, regulate uh, the cryptocurrency market currently. Um, and it's tough. You can't because how do you regulate speculation? Because, you know, let's just call it what it is. You know, Bitcoin, all these other cryptocurrencies, they're a commodity. Um, they are not a full-fledged currency yet. And can they're, you just, sorry, sorry to pause there. Can you just no. uh, d define commodity for people? Just yes. In case? So, so a commodity, a commodity is, is a, it's a picture of gold, precious metals. You know, uh, they, serve, they serve a particular purpose, yes. 
you know, but there's no function, right? So it's not like real estate where, hey, you know, you, you know, people need real estate to survive. You pay rent. It's an income producing asset, right? Like gold by itself is not going to give you any cash flow or dividends, right? It's not like a stock where you buy into a company and they issue out dividends, right? Um, but it's more of a commodity. And, and the value of it is because what people says it's worth, mm. right? Like I'm sure there's some parallel universe out there that Elon Musk is a part of, right? Uh, where gold doesn't mean anything, right? It's kind of like, you know, grains of sand on a beach, right? Like just gold is just whatever, like they, they don't value it. Um, but we say that gold is worth a lot because we say it's worth a lot, right? Not because it has any function. Um, so in my opinion, that's where Bitcoin and a lot of cryptocurrency is at. I would classify it right now, at least as a commodity. The reason why Bitcoin is worth, I don't know what it's worth today, but let's just, um, I kind of want to look now, right? Just to be accurate. It was like 40, 44,000 something this morning. Okay, so let's say it's 40, okay, it's 44,000, right? Let's use that number. The reason why it's worth 44,000 is because everyone says it's worth 44,000. Whereas, you know, nine years ago, people said it was worth way less than that. Uh, and same thing with any other, you know, coin, like even like the meme coins, like the Shiba Inu coins. They're like, I own a good amount of Shiba Inu. And then, you know, there's a, there's a bunch of other ones, right? Uh, but that's for me, you know, the cryptocurrency is a commodity. So it's hard because how do you regulate you know, a commodity that has the potential to be a currency, but it's all based on speculation. It's really hard to do that. Um, you know, the only way you can really tax it is, you know, on capital gains. If you if you buy it for a certain price and you sell it at a certain price, and then there you go. Then you have a very tangible, you know, number that you can tax on. So you, you can do that. But again, there's so many things that's in the air that I, I wouldn't be surprised if all the governments come together and under the banner, of course, of the Great Reset, and they create one world digital currency. Um, because I'll tell you right now, as a guy who's been covering the Great Reset, learning a lot about the Great Reset, and by the way, a lot of people picture me as, you know, the guy with the tinfoil hat on, you know, and like, they're they're coming for us, you know? Like, um, no, that's, that's, that's not who I am. I actually listen to um, all sorts of different, you know, perspectives. I do my best, right, as a man to listen to, you know, all sorts of different opinions and perspectives and whatnot. And, you know, I enjoy covering it because I find it so interesting, mm -hmm. right? Like, it, it's, you're like the Great Reset, you're, that, that initiative, you're talking about historical impact, right? Like, it almost kind of just like Julius Caesar asked Alexander the Great type stuff, you know, stuff, you know, like, that's, that's kind of what we're experiencing here. Um, but I will tell you, under a one world digital currency, it would make the Great Reset significantly easier for those individuals who are looking to push the Great Reset onto us. Yeah, what does, it does look like there are a number of countries, you know, the UK uh, has come out and said that they're looking at building a, a central bank digital currency, CBDC. I think Australia, you know, what happened in Canada, I think set off a lot of the alarms, like I'm Canadian. I think a lot of people in Canada, you know, when, when Trudeau froze people's bank accounts <clears throat> and and also tried to extend that out into cryptocurrencies um, for the people that had donated to the to the, yeah, the trucker thing. Yeah. Um, you know that I think that was I think that was a big sort of like red flag for a lot of people. Where it was yes. like, wait, I I gave money to a GoFundMe. You know, I gave fifty bucks to a GoFundMe. Like, why are you freezing my bank accounts? You know, now I can't pay my bills and do that kind of stuff, and and literally treating people like terrorists in in some yeah. ways. And so I think. That, that that's never happened that I know of before, especially not in Canada. You know, I mean, you might have targeted some people, but so I think it's interesting to see that some of these things are unfolding 
maybe we can just go back when you talk about the the great reset for people that really aren't familiar with that or have heard that sort of term uh can you just say a little bit about that yeah 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 uh, so the Great Reset, long story short, is an initiative, and it's an agenda created by the World Economic Forum. Uh, the uh, founder and the, kind of the executive chairman of the World Economic Forum is a guy named Klaus Schwab. So he's really kind of the guy behind the Great Reset. He's the one that really wants to push it. And it's the initiative where it involves the power, all money, resources, decision-making um, to be centralized at the top, right? The global elite government, right? And, you know, that's that's kind of what the Great Reset is. Um, and, you know, it's interesting because a lot of people, a lot of the problems that really government has created, those are the things that they're using to tell everybody, Hey, like we have to reset our economy, you know, cause, cause all these problems, like there's poverty going on, you know, people are suffering and all these things Like we need to reset and we, and all the power needs to come to us because we're the only ones that can solve it. You know, we're the only ones that could fix all this mess that you guys created, even though it's them. They created it, you know. So, I mean, interesting to me, man, like what's going on with the truckers and can like I just find that so ridiculous. Like people can't even donate money now. Like, oh, my gosh, like that's scary. Like that is really, really scary. And, and people who don't understand the gravity of that is I mean, that's insane. That's money that you generated, that you created, you know, and you can't you don't even have control over that. Uh, I mean, that's just borderline dictatorship. That's tyranny is what that is, you know, and that's kind of how liberty dies, you know, through through that by little by little by little by little. Um, and I'm worried, man, because I think there will come a time where and I don't think we're that far off where, you know, not only do we have one digital currency, but we actually have a global social credit system. And, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of the leaders up top or the leaders are saying, hey, look, there's a lot of. You know, because of war, there's a lot of terrorism going on. Like, we need to protect our people. And this is a matter of national security. And we need to start implementing, you know, these social security, you know, social credit systems to ensure that we all tr- we track where everyone's going at all times. And, you know, we need this for national security. And I'm willing to bet that if somebody you know rolled out, like Joe Biden rolled out and says, we need this. I think just like maybe under half, if not more would say, yeah, I agree that we, we need that right now, Joe, you're, you're correct. You know, um, I genuinely believe that. And it's, it's worrisome. It's very worrisome. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting. You touched on a few things there, you know, first and foremost, for the people that are listening, uh, I actually downloaded Klaus Schwab's book called the great reset and the, the, the sort of like sentiment years ago in 2018 was, I think that the slogan was like, you'll, you'll own nothing and you'll be happy. By so 2030, the, yeah. Yeah, by 2030. And so the idea is that you, that our economies would move into a rental-based economy and the majority of people would be on some form of UBI, which I guess would be distributed through a central bank digital currency that the central bank controls. And then you would live in a, in a rental um, economy. So like you would rent everything, you know, so you literally, you wouldn't own your house, you wouldn't own your bed, you wouldn't own your car. Uh, like none of those things, they would all be sort of rented to you through this this sort of new market. And I started reading through the book because I, you know, I wanted to get a better understanding of like what is this thing that I keep hearing about and it keeps popping up. But I think the interesting part that is um, that's a little edgy for me is that social credit system. You know, I had one of the um, 
I had the head or the director of cybersecurity from the Obama administration on the show years ago. Mm. And I asked him, you know, what's the most terrifying thing that technology is being used for? And he said, hands down, the the facial recognition software, the tracking software, and the social credit system that's emerging in China is is terrifying because other governments are going to see that they can implement a kind of control that has never been seen before. You know, like in yeah. China, they have AI and facial recognition tracking software in classrooms. And so part of their, part of the kids' education in a lot of classrooms now in places like, uh, you know, Beijing and, and whatnot, is that in the classroom, they're monitored and their faces are monitored to see how much they're paying attention. And the AI system has been developed to grade them on how much they're paying attention in class and to their homework. And so that, that, you know, goes on their record and it helps to grade them. And it's like, well, that's, in, that's insane. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And, but then this is, I think the big thing is for me is that all everyday citizens don't have a say in any of that. No. You know, it like, there's no, I think that's the, the interesting part about some of the shifts that seem to be happening is like, well, wait, do people consent to a central bank digital currency? You know, do does the average person know enough about it? Do they want it? Do they know the 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 ramifications of having a central bank digital currency that can be programmed by the the government, turned off, have it timed, have it only to be spent on certain things? You know, I feel like financially we're entering into this era where technology is making it possible to almost like complicate the financial markets and, and financial understanding to such a degree that it's very hard for the average person who's busy, you know, yes. who has kids and and whatnot to really get into this stuff. So what would you say to all that? Because I just said a, a bunch of stuff. And no, I'm no, I think you're it. absolutely right. The, the one word that really resonates with me, and I think this is what it's all about, is control. Hmm. You know, it's all about control. You know, it's all about taking power and control away from the people where it rightfully belongs and and you know, trying to centralize it at the top, which is the government. And, you know, the whole thing with UBI, you know, I don't know if you saw, but LA County just started their UBI experiment where they, they actually take a thousand participants and they um, give them a thousand dollars a month for three years is what they're doing, uh, which is interesting, right? They're, I, I think they're trying to slowly move it towards it being statewide, you know, hmm. uh, but that's what it is, right? Which I find so ironic because where do they get the money to do the UBI program from? Us, the taxpayers, right? right? They're certainly not going to print it because you keep, that's not sustainable. You can't do that for 5, 10, 20. You can't build an economy on constantly pulling, printing money so you can just hand it off. I mean, that's kind of what happened to Venezuela, right? I mean, the leader of Venezuela wanted to remain his popularity. He wanted to maintain his position and his popularity with the people. So he printed off as much money as he possibly could and just gave it all away to these social programs. And and what happened with Venezuela? They, I mean, they've experienced one of the worst, if not uh, one of the worst, uh, examples of economic downfalls in human history. Hmm. Not just American history, not just Venezuela. In human history, they've experienced levels of poverty and and social unrest, and all because of of a leader who just wanted to print more and more and more money to fund these social programs. You know? Yeah, I feel I feel like you know UBI is. I mean, it's, it seems like there's a it's a very controversial topic because I think some people really see it as a. Uh, I don't know enough about it honestly to give any sort of educated 
um, opinion on it, but it does seem to be a controversial topic because so much of our culture and society, especially in America, you know, so many people, it's, I can't remember what the stat is, something like 40% of Americans make, make under $50,000. And so, you know, it's like in today's economy, that is very hard to live on, you know? And so how do we solve that problem? And I don't know about, I don't know. I don't have the answer to that. I feel like that's above my pay grade. Um, I feel like if we had more time, I yeah. would love to get into well, like well, your, Connor, your thoughts we, on that. We but. already kind of touched on one of the reasons as to why the wealth gap is widening is because of the, the high inflationary rate. Right. You know, I mean, that is really at the, at the end of the day, one of the main things that destroys the American middle class. It's the inflation. How, how come though? Like, cause I've, I've noticed, I've noticed that at the beginning, you know, over the pandemic, it was, I can't remember what this, it was like two point two point seven trillion dollars worth of wealth or $800 yeah, billion sure. dollars worth of wealth went up into the top 1% um, and, and got reallocated. And so it was like the biggest transfer of wealth. And oh, sure. no one seems to be talking about that anymore. But how does that even happen? Yeah, well, twofold, the two, two main reasons that come to my mind, at least at this moment is number one, I mean, imagine, imagine making $55,000 a year, making the same number for three years, and then the cost of bread goes up by 20%. Or the right, cost okay. of gas goes up twenty percent, or the cost of you know, and yet you know you have to kind of think, well, who owns these gas stations and who uh, owns these restaurants, who owns these all these things, and and you know, well, it's it's the people at the top, right? They're they're the ones that that own all these assets. So you know, they own assets that hedge inflation, whereas the uh, middle class don't own a lot of assets that hedge against inflation. If anything, they get hurt by inflation. Um, so if you truly, truly want to help the middle class, well, keep inflation lower, closer to that 2% mark as you can, and allow free market principles to dictate the cost of goods and services. Because at the end of the day, if you think about the, the true cost of goods and services, it's geared towards the masses in the middle class. And if you allow true competition and free market principles to dictate what the price of certain things are, well, the market will regulate itself. I mean, it's just, it's, it's such basic e- economy you learned this kind of in like the first week of economics class i'm so surprised that politicians don't understand this concept but again very similar story in venezuela where people at the top they just love printing money because they like the popularity it brings them it brings them votes yeah. you know i mean imagine i'm thinking about that bernie sanders guy economically he has no idea what he's talking about and then look i try to be as politically as middle as i can as i possibly can i, I really do i do my best i, I read uh literature from both sides. Um, and I did, I took, I took time to read, you know, Bernie Sanders policies and his tax strategies and what he's planning on doing. And I'm just kind of like, this guy has, he's off the rocker. Like mm-hmm. this, he's literally saying two plus two equals B, you know, like it, it's just, it, it makes absolutely no sense. So, um, you know, I, I, again, I think the, the human nature of it is, is, is that right. So there's one it's inflation and, and, you know, and obviously number two is, the access to financial literacy has just been awful the last 15, 20 years. Uh, yeah. I mean, we don't teach that in school. Well, I mean, like, no, I mean, the amount of education. Do you have like four or five more minutes? Do you have a hard stop right now? Oh, no, I'm good. I, I, I can go on. Okay. Uh, my next meeting is until for another hour or so. Okay, cool, cool. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, I think on that topic, it's, it's interesting. Like, I think back to the education. I mean, I literally got no, zero education about taxes making money, saving money, spending money. I mean, it was like, you know, I remember, uh, I think I've told this story before on the, on the show, but, uh, my mom worked for the bank when I was a kid, she worked for a Canadian bank and she got me a credit card when I was 16. 
and I, you know, paid my car insurance on that credit card and I paid for my gas on that credit card. You know, I felt like such an adult. Uh, but like, you know, five, six months went by and the damn thing was just always maxed out, you know, and I could never pay the freaking thing off because I wasn't making enough money. You know, I was, I was a, I was a gas jockey. I pumped gas mm. as a kid. That was my first job at a at Petrocan, uh, Petrocanada. And, and so I went to her and I was like, you know, I can't seem to pay this credit card off. And, you know, what do I do and how do I get ahead of this? And she was like, well, I wouldn't worry about it. That's just a part of life, you know? And so that was like the foundation of my financial oh my education, gosh. right? Cause I'm like, well, she works for the bank. She probably knows that's just okay. And so every time, you know, over the course of the next decade that the bank would say, hey, do you want to up your, your credit limit? I would say yes. And then guess what? Within a few months, maxed out again, maxed out, maxed out again. And so I just rode that line for a very long time. But I think it just shows the, just to use the word, it shows the poverty of the financial education that the majority of people get, you know, and nowhere in my, in my, um, high schooling or, or college degree? Did I get any kind of financial literacy? And so I really had to take that on to myself. And so where, where do you feel like people should begin? You know, if people are listening to this podcast and they're like, holy crap, there's a lot of information here, you know, quantitative easing, inflation, bonds, security notes, ETFs, and they're hearing all of this. It's like, where do you think that people should just begin to educate themselves in a basic way. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, that's scary, right? To, to, to kind of touch on what you just said, because I mean, like I, I have a lot of friends uh, who are like kind of the crypto slash social media influencer millionaires, right? Like I, I have friends of mine who do really well in that space, social media influence and, and crypto. And it's kind of amazing because like I show them what a balance sheet is and they're like, dude, mm. this is next level stuff, man. I'm like, it's it's really not like you learn this day one of kind of finance class, you know, like, and so that for me, that scares me a lot, right? Because I, 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 I don't know, I think that most of them are going to end up losing their money eventually, right? Because they just don't know these things. Um, but in terms of where to learn, so I'll tell you where I learned. Uh, I learned a lot from my mentors. I learned from YouTube University. Um, I audited a lot of classes in college, like accounting and, you know, finance, personal finance. I audited a lot of these courses. Um, and you know, auditing is you, you still take the class, right? You just pay a little bit, you know, uh, like a fee, but you don't have to pay like a hundred thousand dollars a year to get, to get a piece of paper. Right. Hmm. Um, so that's, that's kind of what I did. YouTube books, uh, I just by surrounding myself with certain people. And that's, I think that's huge is surrounding yourself with people who, who talk the language of money, who talk the language of finance, because it is very important, you know, whether you want to help people or whether you want to, you know, create a great life for yourself, it money matters. Right. Like we can't stop pretending like it doesn't, you know, uh, so uh, it's surrounding myself with individuals who talked about money a lot, who who talk strategies, not how to take advantage of people who talked about strategy and then really healthy things. It it put me in a platform and a system where I wanted to read more about it. I wanted to learn more about it because it, it, it invicted curiosity is what mm-hmm. it did by being around it. The problem with most young people nowadays is um we're not surrounded by other people who talk about this stuff. Our parents never talk about it. To your point, my parents didn't know how to, you know, operate a freaking credit card like your mom. You know, same thing with your mom. My, my dad didn't teach me how to write a check. You know, my parents never taught me about taxes. The school system didn't teach me about taxes. But hey, at least I know how to calculate the slope of a parallelogram. You know, I, at least I can do that. Right. Um, 
So, you know, it, it, I, it was all self-taught, you know? So I'd say for, if you're listening to this podcast, grab a bunch of your buddies, you know, especially if you're all around the same age, you know, grab, grab three or four or five of your, of your friends and kind of just go, hey, let's just start talking a little bit about money. Let's start talking about strategies. Like you go do research on whole life insurance policies because, oh, by the way, that's like one of the main ways the, the wealthy maintain their wealth is whole life insurance policies, right? Because it's super awesome generational stuff. There's a bank, every, there's a book that everyone should read it's called Becoming Your Own Banker. Um, it's by a guy named Nelson Nash and he's the originator of the strategy. But people should people should read this book. I, I highly suggest it, especially you, right? Um, I, just, I just started looking into whole life insurance and perfect. I was like, I was, I mean, I was blown away. I was like, wait, what? Like, <laughs> yes. Oh yeah. It's can, amazing. It's like, I don't, how does this exist? Like, yes. this is such a great, uh, yeah. tax haven and investment strategy long-term. I was like, this is In, in my opinion, 90% of Americans should replace their 401k with this strategy. Huh? How Some come? people, people actually don't have zero idea how much money they actually lose putting their money in a 401k. And every financial advisor in America is about to shoot me because they're like, well, do, do, do the employer matches. Do, you know, you know, don't you know about that? Like, well, yeah, I do. But if you actually look at the statistics of a 30-year uh, lifespan of a 401k, uh, the management fee of a financial institution that manages the 401k, like these Wells Fargo's and whatever, um, you know, the, the, um, what, are, what are the other big ones? Uh, let's see, there's Wells Fargo, there's uh oh my gosh, my mind's going blank. Oh, right? like like Chase and Bank of America and yeah, well there's 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 more like wealth management, larger wealth management. Anyway, Wells Fargo mm. is one, one of the big ones. Uh, Fidelity, Fidelity is another one. Fidelity, right? right so right, like right. all these big boys, right? Like if you actually look at it, and this is a true experiment, you can actually look it up on YouTube. Uh, if you look at a thirty year span of a four hundred one k, sixty six percent of all profits generated with money working for itself in a 401k is actually going towards the manager not you um oh man there's listen kids there's a reason why the banks are the richest entities in the world you know there is a there is a reason for it um but like it's a true it's a true thing like it's it's an experiment that's been done over and over and over and over again but if you look at the whole life insurance you know concept i mean the the company that you have uh, the uh the policy with and i use a company called emeritus so you have to do it through a broker. So uh, shout out to my buddy, Dave Swanson, who's a really, really good friend of mine. Um, probably around our age, actually. But no, he no knows relation this. to Ron Swanson? No, not no relation to Ron Swanson. <laughs> uh, it's, you know, or Joe Swanson, you know, the, right. the fictional character from Family Guy. Um, but he knows this. He's like world class in this strategy. I'd be more than happy to introduce you to him. But um, like it, it's, it's unreal. So the policy that you have, the company that you have a policy with, they take like four or 5% off the top. But other than that, everything is yours. Right, like all of it's yours, and it grows. I mean, to my knowledge, again, you have to talk to the experts. But the policy that I have, at least, uh, grows tax-free. I can borrow against it tax-free. Uh, there's no inheritance tax. IRS can't touch it when when money gets moved. Uh, and the compound effect of it is just phenomenal. Like it's absolutely amazing. So I have three policies. My wife and I have one together, where we put in like, I mean, it's not a lot. It's like fifteen grand a year, you know. Um, but by the time we're like 40, I think the cash value in it, it's going to be something along the lines of close to a million. And wow. what you do, the real, the real beauty of this strategy is you let it sit for over seven years. But once it comes time for a big purchase, like a car or a house, you use your own cash value policy to loan you the money. So, you know, when you're, when you're getting a 30-year amortized mortgage from a bank, most people don't know that your first payment you make, 75% of it goes to straight interest to the bank. And until the 15 or 14 year comes across, 
that's when you start paying principal interest at a 50, 50% margin. Well, what do most people do during those 15 years? They either A, move, get a new mortgage, meaning the banks are making more money again, or they refinance, which resets the amortization clock. And you're paying 70, 75% in, in, in interest in your payment all over again. So banks are making more money off of you, right? So because again, who, who's going to wait 30 years to pay off their loan? No one. No one does that nowadays, right? Yeah. So the idea is that instead of banks making all that money off of the interest off of you, you make your own money, right? You're, you're self-banking yourself through your cash value policy that you've built up through your whole life. And you're, you're banking yourself. You're utilizing, you're loaning the money from yourself. And all the interest that you pay uh, is actually going back to your own policy that is actually ultimately yours and going to your kids. So it's almost like uh, borrowing from the bank of your future kids, but your future kids are actually making all that money in interest. Right? That's how I see it. Instead of the banks getting filthy rich off of you, right? Your family gets rich off of you, not the bank. And it's the same thing with cars. I don't know if you noticed, but the way that car dealers just make their money is they're not, they're not, they don't sell cars. They sell financing. That's what yeah. they sell. They're, they're actually a bank. They're not, they're not a, you know, the, the car just happens to be the asset, right? It's the same thing as the house. But I mean, same thing with credit cards. Like, I don't know if you noticed over the last 10 years, everybody has a credit card nowadays. American Airlines has a credit card. Target has a credit card. You know, Walmart has, everybody's got a credit card because they know, they, they see, oh, look what they're doing over there. You know, I want, I want some of that action. So why not, why not you make that money off yourself, not these other institutions? Mm. Yeah, and I think that's where, uh, you know, making those percentage points off of the transactions I was just watching a, a video this morning that was talking about something like 20 trillion credit card tra- transactions yes. happen every year, right? 20 trillion. I was yeah. like, holy shit, <laughs> that's yeah. a lot of transactions. And so you think about the money that's exchanged there and then the percentage, you know, if it's, because I mean, most credit cards are what, 19%? Yeah, APR, right? 18%, 19%. That's typically yeah, range, 18, yeah. 19%. And so, I mean, that's, that's an insane amount. But okay, well... I want to, I just want to close out. Yeah. Oh, real quick, that, before you, before you do, I, I want to go back. Um, please get your friends, get your friends, create a group. And what I would do is have each person like study a different thing. Like, so one person studies taxes, one person studies whole life insurance, one person studies real estate, one person, and just talk about it, right? Like just talk about it amongst your friends. The reason why I, I love talking about finances and businesses and whatnot, because, you know, when I was 18, 19 years old, I had negative $187 and 65 cents in my bank account. That's where I was. I had two maxed out credit cards and I found myself at one, one night actually eating out of the dumpster. Mm. Like that's, that's why I love talking about this stuff because like the, the, gov- the government, the school system, like they want you to just pay your taxes. They want you to, you know, to, they, they want you there so they can make money off of you. The big banks, you know, like, like it's no accident that they're not teaching these things in school, right? Like the big banks, the big governments, like they want you to stay stupid. They really do. So they can make more, more, more and more money off of you. That's the reality. They don't want you creating your own financial ecosystem like what we're talking about doing. They don't want that. They don't want you creating generational wealth. You know, they want you to work till you're 70 years old, paying their management fees, paying the taxes. Like that's what they want. Paying the interest, you know, so, so please get, get your friends because that's how we incite change is we information, right? Education is how we really create change, right? Education to the masses. Uh, so get your friends, talk about this stuff on a weekly basis. I mean, it's it's so important. And is, is that why, like, is, is so, are some of these reasons why you've been talking about the Great Reset so much? Because it, it seems yeah. like it's it's a very prominent topic for you. And I'm, I'm curious to understand 
why it's been front front and center for you and 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 why it's like something that you think people should be aware of yeah and by the way i, I the, kind of the only reason why i talk about the greatest is i find it interesting yes but it's it's kind of what gets the views like if you go on my YouTube channel, like all all our great reset stuff has a lot of views. Mm-hmm. But I do a video on how to buy a piece of real estate, no money down. Not a lot of views there, you know. Um, <laughs> so I, I like talking about because it it's 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 it opens the door for us to be able to talk about how to take control over your own finances. Aha, uh-huh. that's it. That's that's the mantra, right? It's how like take control over your own finances. Be sustainable economically yourself amongst your family. Don't rely on the banks. Don't rely on the government because at the end of the day, are they really there to help you? Or are they really more concerned about their pockets and control and power? I would say the latter, you know? Yeah, and and even if you just take that part out of the equation, it still makes sense for you to be in charge of you, you know, for you to be in charge of your finances, for you to understand it. Right. Because I think we've we've created a, a huge culture of outsourcing and offloading to the detriment of the individual, yes. you know, to the detriment of the family. And so it's like, well, just outsource that, you know, outsource the knowledge of what to do with your money, offload that to somebody else rather than having any understanding as to whether or not that's the right decision for yeah. you. So, yeah, I, I appreciate that. I insight. mean, think about think about how many people are like, oh, oh I, don't, I don't know. You got to talk to my financial advisor or I don't know. Talk to my CPA. It's like, no, like it's your money. I, I, I got to talk to you about that. Right. And it's crazy because it creates the ripple effect. Right. So it's like if you don't care about money, well, you're what do you think your kids are going to be like? What do you think their mm-hmm. kids are going to be like? You know, I mean, it's it's amazing. You know, I, and I always say this, right? Like we need like this world needs more money in the hands of good people. Like, that's what I believe, right? Like, we need more money in the hands of good people. Money is not a bad thing at all. It's a great thing, as long as it's in the hands of the right people. The same fire that can be used to burn down the house can create s'mores, right? You know, like, like if you want to solve all the world's problems, fantastic. Have more money in the hands of good people. Yeah. You know, it's simple. Yeah, that's very, that's very true. That one, that one caught me off. I wasn't expecting that analogy. <laughs> So, okay. Well, listen, man, I, I feel like I could dig in. I could dig in with you about the great reset a little bit more. Um, are you, are you cool with like one more, one more Heck thought? Yeah, man, one let's more do question it. On it? Let's do because it. Because I, I think that, you know, I've talked to a few friends about this and, you know, one of the big things for me that has really stood out about this concept of the great reset is, is this sort of reallocation of money, sovereignty, and and essentially choice, uh, which has been somewhat concerning for me. You know, I hear somebody like Klaus Schwab talking about it, really saying, and and then watching some of the conversations at Davos and the World Economic yeah. Forum, and and hearing people talk about you know using technology to almost in a way bypass the individual's uh, choice in being able to say what they do with their money or what they do with their time and. And where they travel, you know, and and where they go and what they do. And so I'm curious for you, as you've read, researched, talked about what are some of the concerning parts of the of the Great Reset that you have that you really dug into? Yeah. Um, So I'll start that with a kind of a 30,000 foot view ideology. Right. So 
Um, there's a quote that Jesus says in the Bible where it says, Sabbath was created for man, not man for the Sabbath. And then afterwards he says, so therefore the Lord of the, so the Son of Man is therefore Lord even of the Sabbath. So it's the idea that, uh, the idea of Sabbath. So Sabbath is rest. It's the rest day, right? And it was originally created to serve man. And it got to a point where the religious, religious leaders uh, turn it to where the man serves the Sabbath. Where like, if you don't go to church on Sunday, you, you're, you're a piece of crap. Uh, if you work on Sunday, you're also a piece of crap. Like if you were stupidly guilty about doing all these things on Sunday, when, you know, for most people like, hey, this is my Sabbath. I can kind of do whatever I want. You know, um, it's the same thing with the Great Reset. So originally, governmental systems were created to serve man, to serve the people. Now we're moving towards a point where the people is actually serving the governmental system. Mm. And that's what the Great Reset, in my opinion, is all about. You know, when this country was founded, you know, by our founding fathers, the whole idea was that the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, all these things. And by the way, I, in, while I was in college before I dropped out, uh, I was a philosophy and American history major in education. Cool. Cool. So I, I'm like kind of a geek with all this stuff too, right? Um, but um, when, when the founding fathers first started the Constitution and founded our government, the whole idea was all about the people. Right. Like it actually goes as far as if you read the Constitution, it actually goes as far as the people have a right to uprise and take up arms against the government. The minute the government starts taking away the liberties of the people, hmm. we have crossed that line a long time ago. Right. And now we're at a point where all the liberties is about to go to the government and, and not only just in the U.S., but globally. Right. So my so the Great Reset for me, it represents this, you know, large philosophical shift of governmental systems originally being created to serve people. And now we are having the shift where the people are now being made to serve the governmental system. And all these things like UBI, social credit systems are being put in place to enforce that ideology that the people are there to serve the governmental system. Very similar how originally the Sabbath was created by God for man, for the purpose for man to rest. And now there was a shift, right? There was a religious shift that happened before Jesus came, and it actually happened after Jesus left, because um, I believe that's where we're at now with faith, where the people now serve the Sabbath. Hmm. So very same philosophical ideology, kind of in parallel, where, but that's true. It's true of humanity. We, you know, think about it. Technology was created to serve us, the people, and now people are now meant to serve technology. Hmm. Um, and we see it in our day-to-day -day lives, right? So for me, that's kind of what the Great Reset represents from a high-level standpoint. Um, and we can certainly get more into the details of how the Great Reset's occurring and what all these things, because I've been covering enough for, I think, the last three years, you know? Yeah, well, please, like, you go into a little bit more detail. Like, how do you see technology playing into it? <clears throat> what do you see happening from an economic standpoint? Um, I, I think those two those two aspects of it are are very, very interesting to me as I've, you know, as I said, as I've continued to read through Klaus Schwab's book, um, to just again to try and have a, a like non-biased perspective of like, okay, what is this guy actually saying? What is the organization, the World Economic Forum, actually trying to do? And for me to try and approach it from that from that standpoint. But I think the financial aspect and the technological aspect are are two big pieces. So I'd love for you to touch on that or other components that for you sure, that you yeah. think are relevant. Yeah, and by the way, a lot a lot of the people who object and oppose are are saying, you know, hey, like, could it mean that you know the whole you will own nothing and you will be happy? Does that mean we're just going to move into a rental economy, right? Like, and that's a valid point, absolutely. But my question then is, well, if we don't own it, then who will? 
Mm-hmm. And and do you want that? I think that 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 comes back to what I was saying before. Is one of my biggest concerns is that a lot of this is happening without the consent or exactly yeah. advocacy from the from the everyday person saying, actually, I want to live in yeah. a rental economy. You know, it's right. like it's sort of being manufactured and pressed upon the people versus the people saying, hey, this is what we this is absolutely. what we really want and need. So anyway, and no, you're absolutely right. As a matter of fact, most people want to own their home. Right. Call it what it is, right? And we're seeing that right now. There's a reason why the U.S. median sales price of a single family home is higher than it's ever been. It's because people want to own stuff. You know, I mean, if you look at things in general, the people who make the most amount of money and the most power is the people who own it, not the people who rent it, you right. know? Um, and that's kind of where the government wants to be, right? They want to own all the stuff. They want to have this hierarchy so that, you know, hey, we will be happy, but we have power over you. And, you know, in order for you to be happy, we have to have power over you because you're too stupid to make your own decision, right? Hmm. Um, so I see it kind of happening in two different ways. Uh, if you if you go back throughout history, um, whenever there was a government that wanted more power, they always did it in states of emergency. Um, they always, you know, so I'll give you a perfect example. There's a, there's a, um, a, the wealthiest man in Rome was a man named Marcus Crassus. And when, the way that Marcus Crassus got rich was um, he made his money in real estate. He was the original fix and flipper, right? Is what he did. And so what he he would do, his strategy was very unique. And I studied Marcus Crassus very closely. And so uh, what he would do is very interesting and very unique. What he would do is he would um, see a property that that is on fire. So whenever there was a property on fire, and by the way, there was no public fire department at the time. So he would offer a service where he not only would offer to take out the fire for you, right, through his resources, but he would also offer to buy the house after it was set on fire. And what he would do is not only would he make money off of his services of putting out the fire, and then he would buy the house at literally a fraction of what it's actually worth because it was just set on fire, right? And what he would do is that he would fix it up and he would sell it, right? What people don't know and what people didn't realize until until later he died is he was actually the one who set the fire. Jeez. Like people don't know that, right? So people didn't find that out until he died and they looked into his records that, holy cow, he was actually the one who hired people to start the fire in these homes. So he would, so in hindsight, they, they, they found out that he would research the hottest markets in Rome, huh. right? Like the hottest markets. And he would hire people to, to literally start fires in, in certain homes in these certain neighborhoods. And he would make the money off of putting out the fire and then he would buy it at a fraction of the cost and make a fortune selling it because it's in the hottest market in Rome, right? right? That's how he made his money. So he, cre- he made money, he gained power and wealth by, by, through an emergency, by being an opportunist of the emergency. But what people know is he created that emergency. And a lot of times, you know, that's how governments receive more and more power is they utilize the emergency as an opportunity for them to expand their reach. But what most people don't know is they're the they're the root cause of that emergency. They're the reason they're the the ones who started that emergency, you know. So, again, I won't get into COVID, but I think it's pretty well known that COVID was created in a lab. You can't refute that. I don't care if you are the most liberal person in the world with purple hair and you voted for – fantastic, right? I, I, I get it, right? Um, but it's fact. It's factual, right? You can't deny that. It's like saying that the earth is flat, you know? Like, mm. sorry, maybe if I offended a bunch of people, but um, 
I don't you know, know, I don't know have, how many flat earthers too. I know, much, right? I, I, lost, I don't, I don't to there's many. If, there, if there's one, I'd be surprised. There you go. Yeah. Sorry, Kyrie Irving, right? But like, you know, the, the sky is blue, the earth is round, then COVID was created in the lab, right? We all know that at this point. Um, so if you think about where we are economically, because you asked economically, how does that happen? Well, mm-hmm. you know, if you think about it, inflation creates, you know, some of the biggest wealth gaps that, that people, you know, have known in the history of mankind. Wealth gaps are known to create social and economic unrest. Those types of things tend to create absolute measures of chaos and emergency, right? I mean, the longer, the, the bigger the wealth gap gets, the more social unrest, domestic unrest there becomes, you know? And that, I believe, is going to be the emergency that the World Economic Forum, the, the elite governments are going to use to say, hey, we need to start implementing universal basic income Clearly, this capitalism thing's not working, you know, even though we're the ones that messed it up. Um, you know, we have to create universal basic income where everyone receives, you know, $2,000 a month, $3,000 a month. And um, by the way, we're going to increase the tax rate to 80% to 90%, you know, and we're going to collect all the money. All the money is going to come to us. Oh, but, but don't worry. We're going to redistribute it so that everyone can be happy and no one is poor. And, you know, we're all living in this la-la land, you know. Uh, but, of course, they're the ones who kind of created that large inflation number to wealth, to, to you know, increase the, the wealth gap anyways, you know. So, I mean, I see that as, as economically speaking, as one of the major ways that the Great Reset will occur. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I think in, in some ways, uh, you know, again, I, I go back to just on what you're saying. I go back to what happened in Canada and the Emergency Act got put into place. And, you know, that's a whole yes. different debate as to whether or not people listening think that that should have happened or shouldn't have happened. But just to your point, when they when they took back the Emergency Act, they didn't take back some of the power that the Emergency Act gave them and granted them. They've actually been trying to pass legislation to ensure that they can continue to freeze the bank accounts of anybody that contributes to protests that they deem to be uh, anti-government or a threat to the economy or a threat to the city in any way, shape, or form. So, I mean, that's just a, that's just one example of a government saying, oh, we need emergency power, and then letting go of the emergency power, but not letting go of certain parts of it and actually <clears throat> maintaining that now moving forward. So, it, it, and it does seem like in many places, Australia, Canada, the UK, parts of parts of the US, it is becoming more and more and more challenging to speak against things that you oppose within your government. I mean, think yeah. about how many countries there are uh, that are now putting in legislation that are anti-protest, you know, that you're yeah. not allowed to protest or you have to you have to go through some like crazy bureaucratic, you know, loops and red tape in order to get a, a freaking permit for you to go yes. protest. So you have to. So the government has to say, yes, yes, you can go protest. And it's like, well, that's that's actually not the point of the, the right. protest. The point the of purpose, protest is, you know, like, is to go say like, <laughs> we disagree with you. We don't need your approval to yeah. tell you that we disagree with you, but we just, we vehemently disagree with you. Mm. And so it does seem like, you know, then that's just, again, it's one example. It does seem like there's many examples yeah. of having emergencies. I can't remember who said it, like never waste a good emergency. I'm totally. Yeah. Never waste a crisis. It's a Chinese proverbs. Yeah. Uh-huh, never waste a crisis. Never yeah, waste that's a crisis. It. And, you know, they're, they're a good example of that, you know, and, and just seeing some of the stuff that's been coming out of, out of China. And it, I mean, it's been very interesting to see the whole thing 
unfold and to have conversations about this in a way where people aren't like, oh, that's just conspiracy theory and it's absurd and it's, you know, like you were saying, tinfoil hat wearing. And so what do you say to people that hear this conversation and immediately want to tune out from it, disconnect, Mm -hmm. shut off? Um, and not even explore it in any kind of, of critical way. Like, yeah. how, how do you actually address that? Yeah, um, I don't blame them. You know, I, I don't. Because it's, it's, it's tough to think about, right? Like, it's tough to imagine a world where we just, you and I have no basic freedoms. We have no basic liberties. We, we can't decide, you know, I mean, I, we're at the point now where we can't even decide what our kids learn in school. Isn't that sad? Like, we have no control over what goes into our kids' brain. Our own kids. Mm. right that we parent um it has been it has been interesting to see that narrative come out of certain politicians mouths where they're like absolutely you know you like just because you're a parent sending your kid to school doesn't mean that you should have a have a say in what your child learns it's like yeah i mean i think the beautiful part of america is that like we have ideologies that are different like the, the the people that tend to disagree with what i have to say are typically ones who identify themselves as very progressive liberal um which, you know, for me, I don't understand because I actually have taken intentional time to call my friends who are very as progressive liberal as you can be. You know, I have I have four friends that I consider to be close friends that are progressive liberal. And there have been many times where I called them up and say, hey, like, I just want to hear your perspective on this. I won't say anything. I won't disagree. I won't talk. But for 15 minutes, can I just hear as to why you believe what you believe? You know, I want to learn, you know. Um, and at the end of the day, look, I mean, even if you disagree with what I have to say, understand that at the end of the day, I'm just a guy who wants to learn as much as he can about the world he's living in. And I'm going to react to it. I'm the type of guy where, you know, if I, if I do all my research, I hear arguments from both sides and I don't think something's right. I'm just going to say that's BS. Mm. You know, like I, I genuinely don't think it's right that governments wants to take away our freedoms and our liberties when the intent of government being set up and, and conceived was to serve the people. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it's right that they're creating emergencies to then further their own agenda and extend their own powers of reach. I don't think that's right. Um, so, you know, am, am, I, am I a curious man? Absolutely. You know, I will do as much as I can to learn about everything that, you know, so I can genuinely, and by the way, all for the purpose of serving people, right? Like if you if you saw how much money I make and then you saw what car I drive and where I live and the clothes I wear, I mean, you, you know, I, I make a pretty good case that I don't live a life that's all about me, 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 and what, you know, cars I can drive and what designer clothes I can wear, you know? Like it's, for me, it's not about that, right? But, um, you know, I say if you are if you don't disagree, that's fine, but at least understand that, that is, that's the position that I'm taking, that I've done my research, I've done my homework, and, you know, if something's BS, I'm going to call it out. You know, and thankfully, yeah. I have a platform that that people are at least willing to to listen to me what I have to say. You know, um, that I get a, at least a decent amount of views in some of my videos. So, um, I say it's completely natural. You know, I think there are people who get intimidated by that. There are people who just don't want to hear it because they don't they don't want to know or or kind of what that leads to. Uh, and and some people don't want to hear it because they don't want the confrontation. Um, most people have comfort and safety in their own ideology. But the beauty of the human race is that uncomfortability is what actually allows it to advance. Uh, if you think about the uncomfortability of food not being cooked is what led to the invention of fire, right? Mm. There were people who were uncomfortable with you know riding horses. And then a man came along and says, hey, you know, I, there's, I, I have this thing called a vehicle. It's a car. 
right? I think there's a story I heard, something along the lines of, I think it's uh, Ford, right? But his mother was dying and uh, he couldn't get to his mother fast enough by horseback. And then he created something like a, a car to be able to go there faster to see his, you know, like, I think that's the origin story of even how the car was invented. I don't know, maybe I'm completely wrong, but um, but that's, that's just the beauty of the human race. Uncomfortability is what creates growth. And, and unfortunately, um, you know, there's a great quote that a lot of people have heard at this point, right? But it's just like, you know, hard times create strong men, strong men create weak times, weak times create weak men. And then, oh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, strong men create good times, good times create weak men and weak men create hard times. And it's the never ending cycle of humanity, right? Hmm. Uh, and I think we're in a place right now in America where we, we've had a lot of really good times the last 50 years. And uh, unfortunately, it's created and produced a lot of weak men who don't have who don't want to have that confrontation. Uh, but that confrontation is what creates innovation, and that's what we need as as human beings. Some of the best ideas that have helped grow our business is when my brother and I literally were at each other's throats, you know, about our about our business ideas, or when I had a conflict with an employee. That employee thought it was a better idea if we did this. I thought it'd be a better idea if we did that. You know, and it turns out the employee was right, or I was right in certain cases, right? But at least they got to be heard. You know, at least they got to, you know, have that conversation with me. So that's a that's a great question, Connor. I think, you know, you and I had a fantastic conversation. I really enjoy this. If you're up for part two, I'm down for it. Hell yeah, um, man. yeah, I'm sure I'm sure the audience will have a, a bunch of follow up questions that we can dive into. But, I, you know, I just appreciate opening the conversation because it's something that I certainly have been learning a lot about, you know, in the last year or two. And not just, you know, things like the Great Reset or anything like that, but just the financial system, the economy, yeah. you know, watching videos of Ray Dalio talking about how the empire of America is in decline and some of the signs and signals of that and then being like, okay, well, what do I do with my money? You know, how do I save that? How do I invest it wisely? Um, how do I protect the the money that we have saved for the future for my son, for my family? And so, and I think that a lot of people are asking those questions, and I, I think it's fun sometimes to have these bigger conversations about what's happening globally or what's happening in the economy, and like why is the government doing that, and you know do I agree with it? Because I think for so long I just didn't have an opinion mm. about the economy. I just didn't really have an opinion because because I I just didn't know anything, yeah. you know. And it's I feel like in some ways not knowing and not having any opinion is. Um, you know, that, that notion of like ignorance is bliss. And it's just like, no, it's just ignorance, you yeah. know, like it's just ignorance, period, full stop. Like, so anyway, I, yeah, that's well, I'll, all I'll, to say. I'll take it full ahead. circle. You know, what, what I said in the beginning is, you know, ignorance is a slap in the face to the people who believe in you and who need you. Right. You know, it yeah. really is. You know, those, those who pride themselves on the, ah, you know, well, that's other people's problems. Or, ah, you know, I don't know anything about that, you know. Well, look, you should, because it affects your family, affects your kids, it affects everything that you know in life that you cherish. So yeah. if you're not willing to protect it, then is it really that important? You know, well, I mean, so I, would, I would ask that question. You know, I mean, we all need to be aware of these things because it's yeah. our world, you know? Yep. Yeah, well said. Well said. All right, well, we'll pause there. Thank you so much for, for jumping on the show and having this conversation with yeah. me. Uh, we're going to have the links in the show notes for where people can find you, but where is the best place for people to go and follow along with you and your journey? Yeah, I, I mean, well, I mean, my personal Instagram handle is the Daniel Clock, which, I mean, just, I, I don't really post much. I usually just post pictures of my wife and, you know, us. I, I, I post a lot on stories, but... Um, if people want to get involved, what we got going on, YouTube is probably the number one platform we focus our attention on. So our YouTube channel is the Quack Brothers. 
Uh, if people want to learn real uh, free stuff, I, I post a lot of free content. Uh, we actually just released a free course. I think there's like about 50 to 60 hours worth of material uh, that talk about real estate investing and, you know, raising capital. And, you know, we have a productivity course in there and um, all that's free. Just go to the quackbrothers.com and look under free stuff and it's under base camp. Uh, so that's mm-hmm. that's kind of like our place where we give. So we try to we give as, away as many things as we possibly can. Like even my book on real estate investing, which outlined how I got to $10 million worth of real estate. Uh, you know, with no money, utilizing, not using any of my own money. Uh, I literally outlined my entire process in that book. So, awesome. you know, that's zero to 75 units.com. You know, all you gotta do is just pay for shipping. So yeah. Uh, by the way, you said you, you were going to say something before I, before I, I think I interrupted you. I didn't mean to do that. You said you have one more thing to say. No, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I can, if I did, oh, okay. it's Got gone. It. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> but, well, sorry if I cut you off. I didn't mean to do no, that. No, brother, it's, it's all good. Well, I, I've really appreciated this conversation. Yeah. Such a blast. And I will have the links to all your work in the show notes and I hope that people will check it out. And uh, I really hope that that if you're listening to this show that you share it with somebody, you know, we talking about mending it forward and I hope that you do mend it forward and share it with somebody that's interested in financial literacy, that's wanting to learn more, that's wanting to engage in these conversations and save and invest in the future because uh, I do think that it's it's absolutely vital and so important. So thanks again. Thank you for everyone that tuned in. And until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off.